You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV. On March 5th, 2018, and now March 5th is a special date for me. It's my lovely wife's wife's birthday. And uh, you got to remind me later today to get out of work early so we can go out to dinner. But it's going to be a busy day. It's going to be a busy week. I apologize for not putting out a show later in the week last week. Um, it was just really busy. And then came Friday. We lost power with the insane uh, windstorm. And the government was shut down, of course. And we couldn't put anything out. But here we are. Uh, several days later, and oh my gosh, there is just so much to talk about, so much going on. I, I mean, I could go into guns and criminal justice deform and foreign policy stuff. Obviously, we got tons of articles out today on the steel tariffs, on the debt, on ethanol, you name it, we have it. Obviously, immigration. But the GOP has no narrative. On a single one of these issues, they're a balloon adrift in the wind. Wherever the wind, the media and the Democrats blow them, that is where they will go. So we're now facing a nightmare scenario. The worst scenario that I predicted a year ago seemed like things were getting better, but now we're reverting back to it where we get the worst outcomes of the GOP in general, of Trump in general, not the good aspects, but the worst aspects. And then we all get blamed for it, and the Democrats, you know, wind up crushing in the midterm elections. So let's let's start unpacking this. We'll go try to go issue by issue and get in as much as we can today, because uh, we're also going to put out another podcast. This one is episode one ninety eight. We're going to put out one ninety nine, a continuation of our Meet the Candidates series. We'll have another uh, candidate for you today, and then later this week we'll celebrate our two hundredth podcast together. Very exciting. Um, March 5th is a special day, not just because it's my wife's birthday, but also because this is the day that Trump promised to restore the rule of law. This was the day, now he should have done this 13 months ago, but this was the day he was going to end what was manifestly the most unconstitutional act likely ever done by a president, where a president conferred positive rights upon illegal aliens, people that pursuant to law had to be deported. He violated the national sovereignty, really the underpinnings of the Declaration of Independence, governance by the consent of the governed. I say this all the time. The people, through their representatives, have to determine the outcome of every major policy issue. The most important policy issue is who joins that society. That absolutely must be determined by the people and their laws, and the president violated that. Yet, because of a stinking district judge or two of them, we are told 
under our prevailing system, which is completely erroneous, that now amnesty promulgated by Obama is the law of the land. So March 5th, as of today, almost all these illegals could renew their uh, status. 11,000 already filed to renew it since the court order. And of course, as we noted last week, the Supreme Court refused to grant the appeal. They said, oh, let, let, let the appeal process go through. That's John Roberts' Supreme Court for you. But I, w- I want to step back for a minute and just discuss this philosophically. You know, the government was shut down on Friday because of the windstorm. We have the ultimate government shutdown today. To me, if this doesn't bring out the point that our government is broken, I don't know what does. That because of a district judge, illegal aliens can now get social security cards, work permits, demand for states to issue them driver's licenses in Arizona, for example. And through those driver's licenses, through the motor voter laws, they seamlessly register to vote, and many of them are registered to vote, many of them actually vote. Stealing our national birthright, our right to vote, our right to work, refundable tax credits. I have a new report out on my site today. $18.5 billion roughly we spend on health care for illegal aliens. And now again, we're going to continue issuing refundable tax credits. This time of year, um, people get their tax refunds. Now, for a lot of people like our audience that actually work for a living, actually um, net or earn a net or incur a net negative tax po- liability – or net positive tax liability, I'm sorry about that. In other words, you pay taxes on net. So, you know, let's say you pay $13,000 in federal income taxes, you get back $2,000 refund, you're still paying $11,000. But a lot of Americans, they might pay nothing. They might pay one, two, three thousand and get back $5,000 in earned income tax credit and the refundable portion of the child tax credit. Now, it's one thing to have that for Americans, but illegal aliens are now getting that. Stealing our birthright. Stealing our birthright. Unbelievable. And what are we doing about it? We have an omnibus bill coming up where the entire narrative is over the Democrat demands. Republicans control all three branches of government, yet the contours of debate are over how much we're going to bust the budget because they already committed to doing that, even though they don't have to do it, by the way. Trump's OMB put out a memo saying that, look, you know, on the non-defense spending, it doesn't mean you have to appropriate the money. We just repealed the law of the budget caps, but it doesn't mean you have to appropriate the extra money. And they, and they actually called on Congress. Uh, this year, they're slated to bust the non-defense budget caps, in, in addition to the defense ones, but non-defense budget caps by $65 billion. They called upon them to only spend $10 billion of it. Nobody. There's no conservative I could find that's trying to circulate a letter and make a play on the omnibus. Nothing. But in addition to that, they're entertaining it, you know, codifying amnesty, although the judiciary already declared amnesty, but maybe permanent amnesty, and then gun control. What about our desires on defunding tax credits for illegal aliens? What about that? What about going after sanctuary cities? which is the true true opioid crisis, as we've demonstrated 
time and again here at the conservative conscience. But nothing. Republicans have no narrative. They have no narrative. And what you're finding now is that Democrats, you know, there there were a couple of days there, a couple of weeks at the beginning of the year where it looks like looked like Republicans could turn the trajectory on the election and actually make progress. The economy was improving. The tax cuts were beginning to take effect. Public opinion changed on them. And they could have started out the year by making the tax cuts permanent, putting the Democrats on defense, could have passed a bunch of regulatory reform bills, could have gotten rid of the ethanol mandate, which is destroying jobs, raising the cost of living. They could have gone after the Federal Reserve. They could have put out a vision for some sort of sane foreign policy. I have a whole list that I'm creating, as I mentioned before, on this taxpayer-consumer bill of rights. And the more I put pen to paper, the more it's just killing me on how many winning issues we could pursue that's so easy to message to the American people, and yet they're not doing it. It's March 5th already. We're already into the third month of this year, and they've done nothing but codify Democrat policies in the budget bill, but passed nothing, wouldn't even put on the table a proposal to make the tax cuts permanent. So lo and behold, the polls are going back the other way because Republicans are being blamed for all the problems, um, assuming full control of government, but getting none of the benefits of it. And meanwhile, Democrats are swinging districts by 20, 30, even 40 points. They're winning a lot of almost every special state legislative election deep in Republican-held territory. You have this Pennsylvania 18 race in Western Pennsylvania that Trump won the district by about 22 points, and they're struggling to hold on to it. Democrats are raising more money. And then you have Texas, where you know the race seems awfully close there with Ted Cruz. According to some initial preliminary figures, a number of counties are experiencing a 105% increase in Democrat turnout and early voting, dwarfing Republican turnout. And that is in the state of Texas. You can imagine in the true battleground states where that's, you know, where things are holding. And yet they do nothing. They do nothing but operate within the confines of the Democrat narrative. Democrats had a gun control narrative for two weeks, and Republicans say, how high? How, how, what do you want me to do? We, we didn't speak together. You know, I didn't put out a podcast since Trump's Wednesday, disgraceful Wednesday press conference, where he literally adopted every Democrat talking point on guns. Said, I'm going to violate the Constitution to take away guns, violate due process. Yeah, we need to raise the age. We need to ban assault weapons, ban this and that. And he's saying this even as the narrative on guns is completely changing. The narrative of what happened in Broward County there in Parkland is completely the opposite. We're going to get to that in a minute. But just to close the circle on the immigration issue before we move on, now that we brought up the gun issue, isn't it funny how you know tr- Trump was widely considered to be or c- people were concerned he was going to be an authoritarian? People on the right, people on the left, all had concerns he would be a strong man like Putin. And the irony is, you know, since he took office, he's followed the letter of the law and everything. He really has. Everything he's done executively um, has just been countermanding lawless policies of Obama. Now the courts are mandating that he continue them. 
And every single time the courts do it, he obsequiously listens to every single district judge. Even when the district judges are not putting a negative on his positive action, but putting a positive on his negative, demanding that he take executive action in contravention to the law to grant amnesty, to grant benefits to illegal aliens, to continue promulgating Obama's lawless environmental regulations, such as the methane regulation. We, we uh, wrote about that last week. You can always click on my name at Conservative Review and you go through the archives the last couple of weeks worth of articles. You could see more information on that. And not a single time has Trump pushed back against the courts. But yet, when it comes to a constitutional right of guns, he's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to do it executively. I'm going to ban bump stocks. And, and you know what's uh, not to get too deep into this tangent Bump stocks comes from the Vegas shooting, and the Vegas shooting was about a lot more than bump stocks. There's a lot more going on there. And yet Trump is not even asking questions. Who was behind this attack? Who else was involved? It doesn't make any sense. 600 people shot. There's a lot more than bump stocks going on there. Lots of funny details that you know we're trying in our spare time to investigate that. Um, but you know, until Congress calls a for a federal investigation, we're not going to know. And, you know, Thomas Massey, congressman from uh, Kentucky, chairman of the Second Amendment Caucus, he was on our show last week, and he said that Congress got an official classified briefing after each one of these shootings, but nothing after the biggest one of all, after Vegas. And you want to talk about bump stocks, but banning them executively? When you won't even take executive action to push back against the courts when you have the law and the Constitution on your side? Really, Mr. Trump? How come you only find your authoritarian side when it comes to fulfilling the agenda of the left and violating the Constitution, not upholding the law and the Constitution? And this is what's so frustrating. Trump was really very good a couple months ago. And then and Republicans were bad. Now they're, they're bad and he's bad. And we're, left with, we're just left with a terrible narrative on everything. Which brings me back to the whole Parkland thing. You know, I said right away when it came out, I said, look, it appeared this was some random mental, mentally ill, psychotic guy that, you know, just snapped one day. And I said, you know, this is not a right issue. This is not a left issue. This is certainly not a federal issue. It's something that in every local community, you need to decide how much security you want to have in schools, what your protocols are. Um, but there's really no way in a free country like this, irrespective of your opinion on guns or mental illness or anything else, to really stop all this. And, you know, it really is um, – John Lott has some great material on this, but it really is questionable whether there really are more of these shootings than, than ever before. Uh, what is clear is that you have a copycat mentality because of the media's incessant coverage. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I, I said it wasn't political. But the left politicized it insanely politicized it basically used all the victims and the victims families and you know the kids that were there but you know weren't killed as political human shields to promote their insidious agenda but then it turns out the more we found out this actually was political on the exact other side so i wrote about this last week about criminal justice deform and we've been covering this issue for several years while no one wants to talk about it but it's not only the fact that Sheriff Scott Israel and his deputies, this Muslim Brotherhood deputy, that Nezer guy, 
were malfeasant and neg- negligent both before the incident, um, ignoring 45 calls. The FBI as well ignored calls about this individual. And also, at the time of the incident, having four deputies out there not going in the building. So you want to, you know, I, I originally thought this was some random thing. And like, yeah, a random thing. Like, what are you going to do about it? This wasn't random. But it turns out it's more than that. This was a concerted policy on the part of the Broward County Sheriff's Office, the Broward County school system. And similar programs are pervasive throughout the country, all being promoted at a federal level by both the pseudo-right and the left. And that's criminal justice deform. You know, it sounds great when you say, there's too many people in prison. We, especially juveniles, we need to give second and third chances. And let's go and wait and see until they get violent. But, in you know, nonviolent offenders, we need to keep out of prison, treat outside the criminal justice system. That's essentially the gospel of the criminal justice deformers basically fund, funding every single so-called conservative and libertarian think tank, in addition to Soros bankrolling the left to promote this issue, which is all just an effort to get felons out of jail and get more Democrat votes, the same end game of amnesty for illegal aliens. So part of that effort they've created, Obama started in a second term, all these grant programs, both through the DOJ, through the general criminal justice system, but also through the Department of Education, through the juvenile and school disciplinary system as a carrot and incentives to states to keep people out of jail. So, you know, when I was coming up political age, understanding public policy issues, it was the exact opposite. It was even the left was tough on crime. You had to be tough on crime. There was a stigma against not arresting people. Hence, in my hometown of Baltimore, Martin O'Malley, when he was mayor before he became governor and a presidential candidate, he actually, I mean, he arrested, he increased arrests left and right to pad his resume to run for governor. And then eventually he ran to the left of Hillary Clinton. So it just goes to show how far we've moved over on this issue. Now, there's a stigma in every single school system, in every single county government, to arrest as few people as possible, particularly juveniles. And this this plays out in terms of grants. They give states grants to enter into these collaborative, cooperative agreements to work outside of the criminal justice system with juveniles to avoid arrests at all costs. So if you're a sheriff's deputy, if you're local police, if you're school security, you have a very strong disincentive from top on down because the, the county officials want the money and they're going to get the money by showing we have fewer arrests, right? So the deputies, the message goes out to them, do not arrest at all costs. Don't do it. I don't want you arresting people, Okay. What happened now, they're going to say this is for nonviolent, you know, a kid skipping school, um, smoking some weed or something. No, no, no. 
They might say that, but the reality is there is no commensurate incentive for violent offenders. Like, okay, we're going to incentivize states to not incarcerate nonviolent, but then incentivize them to go really strong on violent. No, it's all one directional. So th- there's no discernment between that. And, and, you know, like I mentioned before, this was brought to bear on the very day after the Parkland shooting. The Senate Judiciary Committee passed a bill retroactively releasing a number of violent gun felons in federal prison that used firearms in furtherance of drug trafficking. Really, really bad dudes. And Ted Cruz offered an amendment to say, okay, you, you guys say this is all about ensuring we don't fill up prisons with nonviolent offenders, so let's um, carve out in this bill a provision ensuring that violent offenders don't take advantage of any of these retroactive leniencies. It was voted down 16 to 5. Okay, so this is about jailbreak across the board. And this is happening everywhere. Obama created these grant programs that Trump has not rescinded yet, and Congress refuses to to end funding for. And um, basically, I have a long article on this, I'm going to link to in show notes, but you look at Broward County, and you see the results are astounding. In terms of the juvenile justice system related to school-related arrests, the number of arrests in Broward County dropped from 1,062 in the 2011-2012 academic year to just 392, just one-third of that, five years later after they signed these um, agreements and you know to get these grant programs. And then in the broad county, just in the, you know, not just school-related arrests, but if you look at total juvenile arrests in 2012, it was 6,853, almost 7,000. 2016, just four years later, five years later, 3644, cut in half. Folks, that is what was going on here. This kid, it wasn't just abstract warnings like, hey, this guy looks like the Unabomber. He brought weapons to school. He beat people up. He was violent. It warranted arrests. And then once you're arrested, you want to talk about guns. So then that's how you're, you can't purchase a gun. It's not a gun problem. It's a, I mean, this is literally the firefighter, the arsonist dressing up as the firefighter. We have a system that works very well. Lock the criminals up. Don't lock the guns up. Let law-abiding people have guns until with due process it's proven that they committed a crime, felony. But those that, that, that have been felons, don't let them own guns. And everyone's like, oh, a bad guy's owning guns. Here's the problem. They're doing jailbreak. In general, they're not locking up felons. They're not arresting them particularly juveniles. Look, we need to raise the age to 21. How about you start enforcing the laws? But the philosophy of the left, and no one's saying this. I mean, imagine this is a counter-narrative if you had Republicans and Trump and conservatives saying, you know, these guys are the arsonists being the firefighters. Their essential argument after Parkland is let out the, let out the prisoners and lock up the guns, lock up the bump stocks. That's how you ridicule this. So this came from a federal, at least partially federally funded program to incentivize states to ignore cases like Nicholas Cruz. So this wasn't just a random mental illness thing. This was a general criminal that we knew about, that he should have been arrested, and then as such, he wouldn't be able to buy guns anyway. 
and yet they ignored it. It, was, it wasn't so much incompetence. This was a concerted effort to ignore arrests at all costs, to ignore and, – and like I tell you, I, I live through it here in Baltimore. It's particularly a problem with the juveniles. You have a lot of juveniles that are very violent. And I understand it's unfortunate that at that age they get into this system. I get it. But we have to do justice. You have to look at the rest of society. You know, it's, it's amazing. When you're not talking about mass shootings with an insidious effort to promote gun control, and you're just talking about juveniles in general, everyone's like, Daniel, isn't it terrible? There's too many juveniles going to jail. We, 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 no, we, we have to treat them outside the system. Then when we have something like this, everyone's like, do something, please do something. Can't we just do something? This has got to stop. Really? Well, that's what happens when you sacrifice the potential rehabilitation of very hardened juvenile criminals at the expense of the broader society. This is what you get. So what I'm trying to say is whether this guy was psychotic, mentally ill or not, that's not the point. This was not a case of a ticking time bomb that no one heard ticking that just came out and just shot people up because he had access to guns that he shouldn't have had but that some sort of gun control law would prevent. This was a criminal justice problem. But it's also a federal issue because the feds are sprinkling money to all these counties to not lock people up. You're going to have a lot more of this because we have in this culture a lot of violent juveniles, unfortunately. Even ones that aren't mentally ill. People that are bringing weapons to school, that are assaulting people, that are doing all sorts of things that should warrant an arrest. And they are not being arrested. So sure, those people could still purchase guns because it's not even on their records. It's not even on their records. Yet, there's no counter-narrative. Trump's talking about gun control. The more we find out about this, it's just unbelievable. Now, finally, David French at National Review is echoing some of our narrative and saying, yeah, this guy should have been arrested. This is a crime problem. Well, yeah, you know, some, some of your colleagues there are promoting criminal justice reform. This is exactly like the opioid crisis, where the very people promoting solutions are the ones who created the problem. And they want to double down on their policies of sanctuary cities. There's no narrative to go after the crime problem, the MS-13 problem, the, the sanctuary city problem. The narrative is all about guns because Trump and the Republicans are making it about that, refusing to go on offense. This is so frustrating. So, so frustrating. And let me tell you, the GOP incompetence and malfeasance on this entire Parkland issue is no doubt playing a big role in reversing the polls. I mean, Democrats could only land so many punches without Republicans, you know, block and tackling counterpunching without it having its effect. And, you know, I'm hearing a lot of very ugly polling from deep Republican districts. I mean, what I'm hearing now is worse than anything Democrats faced in 2010, and that was bad for them. I mean, you're talking about a wipeout. Because Republicans just exist to validate the assumptions of the media and and, and Democrats on every discernible policy issue. So that's that. Guns, criminal justice reform, immigration. Let's move on. And before we move on to some of our other main issues, I just want to 
briefly go to foreign policy here. You know, there's been rumors that H.R. McMaster, the head of the National Security Council, might be replaced with Stephen Bygon, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was literally the author, worked under Condi Rice, literally the author of this whole neoconservative strategy of promoting democracy everywhere. He is worse than McMaster. Let me tell you, things have gotten so bad that McMaster, and we've spent a lot of time bashing him last year, he's actually the better voice relatively. I'm not saying you know he's, he's one of us. He's certainly not. But relatively... Um, a better voice than Mattis. Mattis is just out of control. He's becoming commander-in-chief. He's telling Trump, yeah, we're having transgenders in the the military, doing whatever he wants, getting us involved in stupid things. I want to read to you just something interesting from this schmuck, Votel. Votel is uh, the head of um, CENCOM. Very big problem. The the, the embodiment of a failed general that Trump said he'd get, get rid of. Votel told um, this was last week, I believe, he told the House Armed Services Committee, you know, because they're discussing an AUMF, AUMF, uh, authorization of use of force, that at some point we need to have some sort of congressional audit of what is going on, what are we Therefore, what's the mission, what do we hope to accomplish, what's the risk versus return matrix? We always discuss this. And you know, we discussed a couple of weeks ago how the military spending, a lot of it's being wasted not on base defense, but these stupid um, urban renewal programs for for countries and Islamic civil wars that we shouldn't be involved in. They're hurting us anyway, and we're spending trillions of dollars over over the last fifteen years there. Um, and because of that, then we feel we need more money for defense. When if whereas if we wouldn't be involved in there, we'd have enough, and then we have to pay the Democrat ransom on non-defense spending. This is not just a bad national security strategy; it's hurting us on domestic policy as well. And they want to know what's the legal justification for Syria, meaning we're told that you know, uh, imagine saying we can attack Japan now because of the you know 1942 uh, declaration of war. Be like, well, what do you mean? It's a different era it's a different you know time it's the same thing here um until the end of time we could do anything because somehow al-qaeda is involved or isis is a spin-off of al-qaeda and then you know well we have iraq and so the question is syria how could you say we we so they said we can go after the islamic state because it's a spin-off of al-qaeda so that's covered under the 2001 aumf and then iraq was 2003 aumf so the question is, now that ISIS has been defeated and Mattis is keeping us in there to go after Assad, even though Assad's going after the remnants of ISIS and we're in there to prevent the resurgence of ISIS, but also to go after Assad, whatever that even means, how could that be justified under the AUMF? I mean, he, that's a total new thing. Shouldn't we discuss the strategy and then have a position from Congress, you know, like kind of reorient the Constitution? So, no. Votel told them, our legal basis for operating in Syria was largely driven by the collective self-defense of Iraq. And then he said that Iraqi sovereignty provides the legal basis for a Syrian presence. Now, first of all, that's absurd because that means no matter where you ever go, it's it's like a chain effect. You never have to have... Um, 
congressional input because you could always say once we have one engagement, which we'll always have an engagement, you know, once a new president takes uh, takes office, he'll always have to deal with previous engagements. And then he could use that to expand on other, other ones because he'll just say it's a chain effect. That's kind of ridiculous. But it jumped out to me, Iraqi sovereignty? So we have a country that everyone agrees is not a country. It doesn't have its own sovereignty anyway. To the extent it does, it's an enemy government. It's controlled by Iran. We have the Kurds. We don't want Iraqi sovereignty. (laughs) It's bad. We want to break it up. Let the Kurds take the north. And then you have the Shias and Sunnis and the rest of the country battling out the other half. At best, it's three countries. But we're worried about Iraqi sovereignty while our sovereignty goes to hell in a handbasket? When illegal aliens could just come here, unilaterally assert jurisdiction, drop babies, get birth certificates, vote in our elections, distort our representation in Congress, be counted in the census, get access to health care, and then sue us for more benefits and shut down our system of governments through the, through the courts? Are you kidding me? And we're worried about Iraqi sovereignty? But those are the generals that we now have. Unbelievable. Anyway, we're running out of time here. Lots to cover. But moving on here. So domestic policy issues. Trump refused to call, and I was shocked, he refused to call for making the tax cuts permanent in the State of the Union address. But yet now he's calling for a tax increase, because that's what tariffs are, a tax increase on steel imports. Now, a lot has been said on this the last couple of days. I have an article out showing how the real deficit has nothing to do with steel. It's the fiscal deficit that's the problem, not the trade deficit. To the extent we have problems with the trade deficit that weigh down exports, it's the problem is the fiscal deficit, the one that we're blowing up that Trump is blowing up and he doesn't care about. Neither do the rest of the Republicans or Democrats either. But for Trump to obsess about the trade deficit and then grow the fiscal deficit, I demonstrate in this piece how that's the ultimate hypocrisy. The problem we have with domestic productivity and domestic jobs is fundamentally not a trade problem. I understand how a lot of our, even some of our base is hurt by it because the thing with trade is the benefits are spread out across the country, but the liability and every policy has an absolute liability. You have to look at the net. It's a net benefit, but there is you, you could always point to this power plant, this um, company, these jobs went out of business. They're very quantifiable. They're very evident. They're very known to a specific constituency, and that's how it's politically a very tough issue. But the reality is it's only a problem because we're not competitive because of our regulatory burden and our market distortions, such as ethanol and the cafe standards, and ethanol is something Trump supports. And that's another article I have I'll link to in show notes, Cruz's um, lonely battle against the ethanol cartel. See, when we don't have a free market here at home with domestic policy, so then trade kind of exacerbates the problem. If you had a true free market, if we didn't have the, all the stupid taxation regulation, subsidization, litigation, you know, the junk lawsuits, all the things that weigh down our producers that don't weigh down China and Thailand and whatever, you know, Mexico even, 
then um, you know, then then we'd be competitive. Then it's a win-win. Consumers would win. Producers would win. The problem is not imports. That's a stupid thing. So here's how you start off understanding what a fiscal deficit is and a trade deficit. A fiscal deficit, so you know what you take in is good, what you spend is bad. A deficit is bad. When it comes to trade deficit, that's sophomoric. You can't tell me exports good, imports bad. Imports aren't bad. I mean, imports that's um, indicative of a vibrant economy. You, You know when our imports were down and our trade deficit was the smallest ever? At the nadir of the depression, Great Recession, whatever, at the end of 2008. Now that the economy's roaring back and Trump's really, you know, taking credit for it and doubting it, well, and, but then he complains about the trade deficit. Well, there's a reason for it. Our economy's growing. There's a big demand. People want to sell to us. Somalia doesn't have a problem with the trade deficit. No one wants to, there, there's no economy there. So that, 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 that is a good thing. You don't want to, the, the solution is not to tamp down imports and hurt consumers. It's to raise exports. And the way to do that is to go after regulations and market distortions and interventions by the federal government and the fiscal deficit, like, like I'm going to get to in a minute. But just first one word on the imports. So a lot of people have talked about the fact, obviously, you know, it's going to make, you know, a bunch of, you know, your whole panoply of products at Walmart and everywhere else more expensive by taxing imports. But it's more than that. It's also producers, too. See, a lot of people view, you know, protectionist policies, tariffs as, you know, helping producers, job creators, um, domestic uh, companies at the expense of consumers, but it's worse than that. It doesn't only hurt consumers. It hurts most of the producers as well because most producers use steel and aluminum in all their products. Okay? This is what Trump doesn't seem to understand. It's a very narrow sector that would benefit from this. Very narrow sector. Steel using industry. So, so Steel makers, those are the ones pushing the tariff, right? The domestic steel makers. Do you know how many people they employ? 140,000. But steel using industries employ 6.5 million. Think about oil, which is the lifeblood of our economy. The oil pipelines that Trump is so proud of. What are the pipelines made out of? Steel. That's a very big consumer of of steel, the price of oil is going to go up. price of everything is going to go up. Here's the deal. In America, we produce about 90.1 million tons of steel in 2017, which, by the way, was up 4.3% from the previous year, and that was without any protective tariffs. So it's not doing bad. That's 90%. It's enough to purvey 90% of our needs, of our steel consumption. So most of our uh, of our consumption in this country is domestically made. It's made by Americans. It's 70%. It's the other mm, 30% is imported. But here's the deal. Mo- you know the biggest um, exporter to America of steel? It's Canada. It's a friendly country. China accounts for just 2.2% of our exports of steel 
of our imports of steel. And Trump's saying, oh, it's a national security, national security issue. So now, you know, because he's saying the military. If he, so Trump is trying to say, look, you know, he's skirting the economic argument. But he's saying, look, you know, there are certain things that, you know, national security comes first. And look, I agree in uh, foundationally with that argument, um, you know, which is why, you know, I, I talk about this with immigration, a lot of other things that, you know, sometimes you, know, you could say economically, let's just have free flow of people going into our country. Well, you know, you got to have a country sovereignty. There's certain things come first, but it's, it's a, it's a BS issue because what Trump won't tell you is that the, both the military and Homeland security needs only account for 3% of our national consumption of steel, which is easily, that's 2.9 million tons. That's easily covered by the, you know, 90 million tons of steel our domestic industries produce which again fulfills 70% of our overall needs. So it's not a national security issue. And again, most of the um, foreign exporters to America of steel are not enemy nations. Do you know what is a national security issue and a fiscal issue? It's the fiscal deficit. That's the problem. Here's the deal. Couple things. Our debt, as you well know, is going to hell in a handbasket. $20.8 $20.8 trillion in debt, but the deficits are now surging over a trillion. If you look at the real deficit, you know, the fake deficit was $666 billion last year, but the real deficit was $1.2 trillion because that's not just the amount we spent, but the amount of obligations we incurred that we didn't yet expend in outlays, but we incurred them in fiscal year 2017. $1.2 trillion, that's going to surge to close to $2 trillion this year. Interest rates are rising the more debt we service, the more the interest rates are going to rise. Debt, the, the interest payments on the debt alone are going to surpass Medicaid and the cost of military in just eight, eight to nine years. It's game over. Here, here's what happens. You want to know what hurts our exports. It's the debt. See, Trump talks about the $375 billion trade deficit we have in China as an economic problem, as a national security problem. It's not. There's nothing wrong with a trade deficit inherently. The, to the extent there's a problem with the trade deficit, it's because of the, it's caused by the fiscal deficit, and it's only a problem because of the fiscal deficit. Do you know what our fiscal deficit is with China? $1.2 trillion. So out of our $20.8 trillion in debt, foreign countries own six point three trillion of our debt that folks is the national security problem that's the economic problem 6.3 trillion in debt is owned by foreign countries 1.2 trillion of that is owned by china china has the single biggest stake then japan is number two so he wants to talk about the 375 billion trade deficit but not the 1.2 trillion fiscal deficit here's how the two tie together okay listen very carefully We offer other countries a lot of goods and services. Buy our cars, buy our raw materials, buy our services. Here's the thing. When the government issues debt, how do we pay for it? We issue treasury securities with interest 
for other people to buy domestically and abroad to service the debt. The more debt we issue, the more interest rates go up. So two things happen. One is it hurts our domestic economy, and you're seeing that now. That's why the fear of higher interest rates is the single thing tanking the market, even as it should be surging from a generally good economy. Because now, people, the, picture one giant market distortion that the government f- uses the full power of the federal government and all the tax money it collects to distort the entire market into treasuries. Now, rather than investing in capital goods and services in America and factories and jobs, you're investing in crap. You're investing in servicing debt and dependency and creating Democrat voters, frankly. That's what you're investing in. <laughs> you just call it the Democrat Party campaign finance operation. That's what Treasury securities basically are when it, when it boils when you boil down to it. It's complete dead weight on the economy. So that in itself hurts our economy, and it hurts exports. It hurts productivity. So that, there's your trade deficit. But to extrapolate on a foreign holdings component of this, if you didn't have um, the market distortions, what you would have is 100% of what we have to offer are our goods and services. Now, you're offering foreign countries $6.3 trillion worth of treasury securities. To invest in. So foreign investment is not a bad thing. We want them to invest in our country, to buy our products. But they're buying our debt instead. So he's talking about a $375 billion trade deficit with China. It's because they purchased $1.2 trillion in treasuries. Imagine if you wouldn't have debt. You wouldn't have that. So much more of our products and services would be bought. You wouldn't have a trade deficit. Don't, don't bring down our imports and kill our economy. Bring up our exports. Get rid of the debt. That is the problem. That's how it all comes together. That's why it's the ultimate hypocrisy to focus on the trade deficit while just running up the fiscal deficit, particularly from a China perspective. And that's the national security problem. That's what, they're, what they wield over us. That's how they have the ability to tank our economy and by you know, extension hurt our national security. That's the real issue here that no one wants to talk about. Now, in addition to that, and by the way, it's just funny. Just just one more point on this. If you think about the juxtaposition here, China's only responsible for 2.2% of our imported steel, yet somehow Trump's making this a national security issue. They're responsible for 19% of our debt held by foreign countries. Think about that. And yet Trump is not threatening to veto the omnibus bill. He's going to sign the omnibus bill, which, which will co-sign us to permanent debt. And, and you know what's also funny? A lot of people with these protections policies, they talk about outsourcing jobs. Like, outsource, too many jobs are being outsourced. You want to talk about outsourcing? We're outsourcing the indebtedness of our children and grandchildren to foreign countries. That's the outsourcing no one wants to talk about. That you're literally shipping the money and investments out of this country to go to creating dependency and Democrat voters. Then there's the second half to this, which is regulations and mandates. Now, Trump is good on some regulations. But I will remind you, most of the regulatory relief Trump has brought to us is, is it's not the fundamental stuff that's been around for years. It's the, it's the very, you know, 
the stuff Obama did in the last couple months of his 2016, you know, agenda that he just countermanded. And the courts, by the way, are reinstating a lot of it. Now, don't get me wrong. Had that stuff gone through, it would be devastating. But it's not responsible for hurting our exports until now because it didn't exist yet. It's the existing regulations. Now, this is not Trump's fault. Most of this stuff you're going to need Congress to repeal. Think, think about something like Sarbanes-Oxley killing our businesses. No one's even talking about repealing the onerous um, provisions of that. Then you have the ethanol mandate. The lifeblood of our economy is oil. I have a whole article on this. And yet oil refineries are shutting down because they're being forced to either pay a ransom of these RINs credits or blend in this garbage into our fuel that dilutes it and we get less you know, fuel mileage out of it. But Trump supports it, refuses to do something about it, won't allow Scott Pruitt to um, bring some relief to the RFS mandate. And then he got cafe standards. I don't know exactly where Trump stands on this, but this is something he needs to be pushing. You want to know why our automakers are uncompetitive? You don't need tariffs. It's not an import problem. Cafe standards are devastating. When you when you demand that cars be paperweight and get um, you know, by the way, ironically, this was in the same 2007 ethanol bill. I mean, look at what socialism does. It uh, works against each other. You mandate that we get more mileage, but then you, uh, but then you um, put in the RFS, which dilutes the fuel and doesn't give us as much mileage. <laughs> Imagine that. And then also another another aspect of that is thanks to the cafe standards, cars really are getting a lot of more mileage now at a very painful cost. The cost of cars are really going up. They're not going down like other consumer goods have over the years and they should have with, you know, better technology. There's no reason why cars should be so expensive anymore, but they are because of the cafe standards. But, you know, at a very painful cost, they did succeed in making them more fuel efficient. So guess what? We don't have enough um, demand in our economy to fulfill the RFS. And that's why they have to purchase all these credits and destroy businesses. But I digress. According to the Heritage Foundation, every one mile per gallon tightening of the standard, of cafe standards, meaning now you say – in other words, it used to be you, you had to get 27.5 miles per gallon. That increased in 2007, Bill, up to 35 MPG. And Trump and Obama, I don't know where this mandate stands now under Trump, but Obama basically increased it to 54.5 by 2025. That, that, that's a kill shot. Um, you know, and, that, and that's why the price of your average car rose almost 4%. In 2017, the average car now costs $37,270. Tremendous amount of money. Without cafe standards, that would be thousands less. Um, so Heritage Foundation figured out that per one MPG, that costs almost $8 billion to the economy annually. So, I mean, you, you take Trump's uh, mandate, um, almost 30 MPG more. I mean, that's like, that's like 150 billion albatross around the automaking industry. That's the problem. And yet, there's no regulatory agenda. They didn't even pass the RAINS Act in Congress. 
again, Trump has done some things executively, but they're being overblown, not to undercut what Trump's been doing, but just most of the big things you have to repeal statutorily. Nothing in Congress. Nothing. That's the problem here. Go after the debt and go after regulations and mandates and government distortions of our markets. Then come back to me and tell me if trade and imports are the problem. Okay? Otherwise, we're just going to get the worst of both. If we keep all these policies, but then you know, to tax uh, imports, you're going to screw everyone. You're going to kill more jobs. You're going to kill consumers. This is what I'm calling for a taxpayer and a consumer bill of rights. You know, this reminds me talking about cafe standards and ethanol, healthcare programs. One of the things I'm going to call for in my taxpayer consumer bill of rights for the forgotten man is for Congress to commit, all of our candidates would commit to funding a GAO, Report Government Accountability Office. This is actually one of the few good agencies, you know, the legislature is a, um, you know, it's basically their watchdog to conduct an audit and and come out with a report on every government program, market intervention, subsidy mandate, you know, distortion that hurts the consumer and run on that. And that's what Republicans, this is the counter narrative they need on economics, just like they need a counter narrative on crime and public safety and immigration and sovereignty. But we don't hear it. Now, let me close with this point. I'm going to link to this in show notes. Daily Caller has a great article up on how McConnell is basically running out the clock on time. We've said this before. You could debate about what reforms you want to make to the filibuster, if any. But under current Senate rules, this notion that 60 votes shuts everything down is nonsense. There's something called the two-speech rule we've talked about before that basically – Post-cloture debate, you have 30 hours of debate. Um, so Democrats just threaten to filibuster and Republicans like, okay, let's move on. But if Republicans actually force them to um, run out the debate, they could actually force a vote with 51 votes on an issue. And the way it works is this. The two-speech rule is each senator is only allowed to speak for one hour after you invoke cloture. And two speeches, two speeches for an hour. Imagine if you force the Democrats to get 30 members to speak for an hour every time. First of all, half of them are brain dead and they can't even speak intelligently on anything. But imagine them speaking about their radicalism on how they care about America, about illegal aliens over America. Imagine if you put a solid immigration bill on the floor. Well, Danny, we don't have 60 votes. No, you You make them run out the clock. Now, here's the deal. I said this before. There obviously is a certain amount of calendar time. And if the Democrats really did this, they could chew up a lot of time. And you wouldn't have enough time to pass everything and have all the nominees that you want. But you'd be able to force a vote on some things. Whereas now, 60 votes for everything. You can't get a single thing passed. Single good thing. Not one. Doesn't have to be that way. And believe me, if you actually force the Democrats to do this, they wouldn't do this on most issues. They'd have to deal because they don't have the ability or desire to do so, to sound like a bunch of buffoons before the American people. Yet, not only is McConnell not enforcing that, McConnell basically has two and a half workday weeks. Tuesday and Wednesday are the only days. 
Thursday, they're there half a day and they fly out. Why doesn't he make six-day work weeks? Six days. Keep them in, one after another. Economic freedom bills. Helping the consumers. Free market health care reforms. Immigration reforms. Sovereignty reforms. Judicial reform. All these ideas we're going to put into our Bill of Rights. Then tell me what the polling would look like. But alas, we don't have such a party. We have a lot more coming up this week. Um, look, at, Watch for our podcast 199 later today with our next candidate that we're going to announce. Um, not announce, he's announced already, but we're going to announce him on our show, and you're going to hear from him. Let me know what questions you want me to ask. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot more issues I didn't even get to, but we're going we're gonna to get to them. <sighs> so frustrating. What could be, what could be if we had a normal party and a nor- normal political movement in this country that actually had its own narrative and wasn't merely a balloon drifting away in the wind? Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 